Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. David, good to see you. Good to see you. So um, the the purpose of this conversation is to talk about your forthcoming book, The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, The Untold Story of FDR's Concentration Camps, Censorship, and Mass Surveillance. It's a very provocative title and a very provocative book. Um, but before we get into that, um, give us a little bit of background on on what you do for a living and and why you thought this project was important. Well, I'm a research fellow now at the Independent Institute, but I'm also a professor emeritus at the uh, University of Alabama, where I retired in 2020, but I've still been very active. And I've been working on this particular book for, gosh, more than 15 years doing research, a lot of it archival research, a lot of it material that really has never been discussed before, um, so it was a big project and I've done other books. I did a book on taxpayers revolts in the 1930s and mutual aid and on a very early civil rights leader who was involved in the Emmett Till case named Dr. T.R.M. Howard. So I've got a lot of projects percolating around and I, I like to switch topics very you know rapidly, move on to different kinds of projects. But this one has been with me for a long time and I thought of giving it up many times but my wife encouraged me because it's such a massive topic. If somewhere in the book you talk about the fact that that FDR was uh, very conscious of of not sort of putting um, his more um, his more obvious malfeasance in print, and he would have conversations, and he would be careful not to do that. So the the archival nature of this project um, was quite a challenge for you. You spent years just pouring through public and private records. Talk, talk about that. Well, um, you're right about FDR. There's the unfiltered FDR, which is very hard to find. Um, he, in private conversation, and um, he could open up and really be explicit about where he was coming from. Uh, for example, uh, uh, there, we have recordings, uh, White House recordings that were done um, and they've only been uncovered in the last few years. And in these recordings, FDR talks quite candidly about how he wants to spread a whispering campaign uh, uh, about Wendell Wilkie, who's the Republican candidate, and Wilkie was having an affair. And FDR says, well, it can't be linked with any of our people. We'll start it from below and we'll spread it. Uh, he tried to get, uh, successfully got a kind of the Tucker Carlson of his era, a guy named Bo, Bo Carter, who is a nationally ranked uh, radio um, commentator off the air. And he would never say this in public, but in private, he told people, I guess he had a few drinks and he was with a, a gathering of people he trusted, that uh, we're looking into this guy. We're going to see if we can get him deported. We're going to see if we can get him off the air. It's going to happen. And one of the people that was there was a big FDR fan, and but was also pro-civil liberties and was appalled by this uh, and commented upon it. So we get little snippets like that that are very, very interesting, including of FDR's anti-Japanese uh, racism um, and his 
really his desire from an early stage to put Japanese Americans in what he called he called concentration camps. That's why I feel very comfortable using that label because that's the label that FDR himself used to describe uh, the internment camps. And that's, as you point out, that's the one thing about FDR that his even his most adoring historical um, scholars um, acknowledge. Well, that that was a mistake, um, but but they but they tend to blame other things. But but your, the premise of your book is that his attitude towards uh, uh, putting Japanese Americans in concentration camps was was part and parcel for his whole philosophy of governance, which was. I'm going to set a goal and I don't really care about the Bill of Rights. I don't care about the rules. I'm just going to, to break as many things as I need to to get to my goal. And that 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 applies to his entire record, according to you. Yeah, he is an ends oriented view, right? The means are less important than the ends, you know, and the ends can vary over time. 1930s is the New Deal. World War Two, it's get everybody behind him and to defeat the Axis. Um, in his own mind, he's got certain strategies to do that. It's the end. And if it's going to mean violation of civil liberties, um, that is secondary. I use the term to describe the Japanese internment as a puzzle piece. I said, if you have a puzzle, this is, say, FDR's attitudes toward the Bill of Rights, you would uh, anti-Bill of Rights attitudes, you would have the Japanese internment obviously being a gigantic puzzle piece, but it's still one of many puzzle pieces. Um, it connects his over record on, overall record on civil liberties. And I'll say on internment, again, he was a driving force on this. He wanted to do this in the 1930s on a limited scale. Um, and then after Pearl Harbor, there was no great call to inter in the Japanese, but FDR sort of let it fester. And after a couple of months, you're starting to get demands unchecked by FDR, including spread by some people in the administration of, well, let's put them in concentration camps. FDR could have easily deflated that. There was not this groundswell that a lot of people say by saying, look, they're covered by the four freedoms, too. You know, he could have made it a uh, an advantage, but he did not speak out uh, to defend them. Subordinates move forward and subordinates tend to be blamed in history books for the internment. General DeWitt, who actually was initially against the internment when FDR had not taken a public position, gets the blame very often. Um, and sometimes you get accounts in history textbooks and FDR isn't even mentioned except as presidential order, the presidential order, but his name is not even used. So it's a very interesting way that historians will condemn this, but they do not really want to put the blame on him. He becomes a kind of coolest, reactive character, where the FDR of the New Deal, of course, is very proactive. But somehow that FDR disappears when it comes to Japanese internment. He's excused. He's kind of clueless. He's um, responding to hysteria that really you can't do anything about, which is none of this is true. I, I want to go into his um, his influences. And you, you talk about this um, both, uh, you know, working for Woodrow Wilson and his uncle Ted, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Um, and I, I'm struck by, and I, I, I try to talk about this when, when you delve into the, to the the functioning philosophy as, of progressivism as as was born 
in the late 1800s, 1900s, when 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 FDR was sort of developing his governance style, um, it, it was always extremely elitist, and it was very scientific, as as uh, Frederick Hayek might call it, and also nationalistic. But but nationalistic in the sense that that the, the nation was viewed as a single entity, and you could sort of science your way out of it by tweaking this and manipulating that, and 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 all of that stuff. And and FDR is is swimming in this pool. Um, progressivism eventually became a, a bad word, but it's interesting today, and I and I hear a lot of echoes um, from history in your book about things that have happened to us in the last three or four years. Um, it's interesting today that progressivism is is again a benign and benevolent word that that the modern the modern left uses. But um, you know the the history of 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 concentration camps and and eugenics and racism and and by any means necessary stuff that that is stuff that he learned from Woodrow Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt, according to to what you say. Yes. And again, he called uh, Teddy Roosevelt Uncle Ted, even though Teddy Roosevelt was technically a very distant cousin. However, FDR kept it all in the family by marrying Teddy's niece, Eleanor. Um, so there were very close ties. And FDR, it's often said, was part of the his branch of the family were Democrats. Well, they were. But FDR supported Teddy Roosevelt. He uh, was head of the Republicans Club at Harvard just for for Teddy. Um, and was very much, up, you know, in that trajectory. But the Democrats said, hey, would you like to run for a you know, state Senate? And it was available and he took it. So he was very close to Uncle Ted, for to him as Uncle Ted, but also very early with Wilson. Even before Wilson ran, he was among those saying he should run. So he called himself an original Wilson man. So Wilson and FDR don't get along, but FDR is able to navigate between both of them. Both of them are the two key people to understand his political philosophy. And despite their other differences, both very much agreed on this ends-oriented philosophy. The Bill of Rights, all of this stuff, that's all well and good if you have the luxury. But if it's a crisis situation, if you need to get something positive accomplished, you can you know, you can go around it. Um, so he goes on to be Wilson's assistant secretary of uh, the Navy. And uh, Roosevelt during that period is very, very positive towards Wilson's um, abuses, civil liberties abuses. One guy made fun of Roosevelt and uh, did a satirical publication and said, why isn't this guy in the Navy? You know, he's he's assistant secretary of the Navy. Why isn't he in the military? And Roosevelt was so mad that he uh, he, he promoted prosecution of this guy. And he said, I hope he ends up in the, you know, Atlanta penitentiary, you know, for 20 years. And even the district attorney said, well, we don't really have enough evidence to throw this guy, you know, there. So he's got a bad civil liberties record. I would say bad anti-civil liberties record from a very early stage. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. 
go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love liberty and look cool. From day one, one of the shocking uh, stories you write about is the so-called Newport sex scandal and the Newport sex squad where Roosevelt, who was 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 very bigoted, anti-homosexual, um, went after people using very unscrupulous methods. Tell us that story. Yeah, this was a, a, a investigation of gays in the Navy. And of course, Roosevelt was assistant secretary of the Navy under Wilson at this time. He led this investigation and he used very unsavory methods such as you know, they'd arrest people and keep them in jail without charges for long periods of time. For example, it's called the sex squad that uh, would use all these very unseemly methods, including entrap and so forth. Now, this is not an era, era that is very friendly to gays. So, you know, one response might be, well, that's the period. But Roosevelt's methods are so over the top that he comes to be widely content, condemned for them. There is a Senate investigation which blames him specifically for these methods of, of uh, these inquisitorial methods. And a lot of people think when this, uh, it's headline news in the New York Times, that he's the bad guy that his career is over with, but he's able to rebuild his career. But uh, it is a low point. And it's headline news, front page news, blaming Assistant Secretary of the Navy Roosevelt for these this scandal, which ends up being more of a scandal because of the investigation, not because of anything the investigation uncovers in terms of gays in the Navy. So I'm, I'm having a bit of uh, PTSD or maybe the reverse of that. I don't know what to call it, but I've, I've talked a lot about the, the Twitter files and, and the... Um, elaborate um, machine that our federal government has built over the last three or four years, and I'm sure it goes back further than that, to censor um, bad information and critics of the administration. Um, this is not a new thing. And I, and, and I'm, I know it didn't start with FDR, but he, he turned it into a science as well um, through the, the so-called Black Committee chaired by Senator Hugo L. Black. Um, tell us that story. All right. There, uh, FDR had had several reverses by 1935. Uh, it's often forgotten that he was really sinking in the polls. And, and in early 36, there were polls, respected polls, that showed him losing the election. These are not the polls that are often quoted that got the election way off. They are polls that were, you know, scientific polls that called it right in, in November. So he's in political trouble. He's getting worried. There is rising opposition to his policies. So he wants to investigate the opposition. And he entrusts the most loyal man in the Senate at the time, the most effective New Dealer, which is Senator Hugo Black, who has also been, who had also been a Ku Klux Klan member. And this was sort of covered up, but he had he had built his career in the 1920s as a member of the Klan. He's from Alabama. Okay. Well, Black is in charge of the Senate committee and Roosevelt, you know, gives him all the aid of the federal government in his investigation, including getting access to private telegrams. 50% of long distance uh, communication in the 1930s is through telegrams. It's really the closest thing to email at the time. It's, it's almost instantaneous. 
You know, it's a kind of like email too. People don't really necessarily think before they send a telegram, right? They sort of express how they're thinking and they wouldn't necessarily want that revealed. None of us would want our emails revealed, right? So Roosevelt goes to the FCC. There was a rule um, that the telegram companies, the largest one is Western Union, have to uh, keep copies of all telegrams. So they go to Western Union and they basically say, this is the Black Committee uh, with it. And they said, we have the FCC now is, is behind us. And they go to Western Union and said, we want every telegram sent and received, for example, by every member of Congress over like a nine month period. Right. And they get a long list of people and they want to see these uh, they want to see these telegrams. And uh, Western Union's initial response to this is, no, um, you, you need a subpoena and it needs to be targeted. This is called a dragnet subpoena. Right. You don't you, you're asking for every member of Congress and they say, no, we have the FCC behind us. And finally, Western Union caves. And so they start going, the members of the committee and the FCC start going through these telegrams. And uh, they go through several thousands a day over several week period. And it adds up, the math is right on this, to something like 3 million telegrams that they go through. And then they, the committee chair says, well, if you see things of a private nature being discussed, don't pay attention to that. Only pay attention to lobbying because this is a lobbying committee. What's lobbying? Anything political, basically. That's how they define it. Literally, anything directly that could have a political, indirectly political influence. So then Black has these telegrams and said, on June 8th, you wrote this. And you know, the guy didn't even know about this. He's ambushed. So it's very effective where Black is doing this. Western Union, though, eventually gets upset about this, and they start informing people who have you know, have the telegrams, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, they start to expand it. And, and so they, the search, so they, they, they uh, uh, the Black Committee uh, targeted some prominent individuals who were not even in Congress, including the man that was Silas Strawn, that was head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. He was head of the Golf Association. He was like head of the bar. He was like a big guy in Chicago, big law firm. So they Western Union informed Strawn that, hey, you know, we're searching through your telegrams because the Black Committee wants to see them. Um, and Strawn sues and he is mad. They inform other people, including the uh, Secretary of War, I guess would have technically been FDR's boss in World War One, Wilson's Secretary of War, Newton Baker. And Baker's response to this is said, if someone were doing a lynching of Senator Black, I would not participate. However, I would not stop the person putting a rope over his neck. This is how mad people were about this, and it was headline news. And um, the ultimate result of this is Black was, he had done all of his dirty work, so he couldn't keep doing it anymore, but he'd already gotten all the information. But he was slammed down by a, by a court, which was very rare for congressional committees at the time. He is told you can't do this anymore. He'd already done it. So it was kind of a hollow victory in a way, but it was a precedent for the future as well. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. 
My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. So mass surveillance is not a new thing. Um, the, the tools are just different, and, and FDR's entire goal was to science the critics um, of the New Deal um, who were kind of uh, drawing some blood in terms of his, his popularity in the polls. And, and then he goes on using, I guess it was the Federal Communications Commission to um, impose, was this, was this the beginning of the Fairness Doctrine? Was it created during his time or did it exist? But another way to, to go after his, his critics on the radio. Um, there was a, it was a very early version of the Fairness Doctrine and it was kind of FCC practice. Part of my book is I go into the history of radio and radio regulation. And interestingly enough, up until 1927, radio was arguably more free than the print press um, before that time. Um, but with the Federal Radio Commission comes in in 1927 um, uh, and later becomes the federal the FCC, they start cutting back on the number of radio stations and they start imposing certain rules right? Certain expectations, uh, which I guess you could call it in a way an early version of the Fairness Doctrine. But like with the Fairness Doctrine, what ends up happening is radio stations avoid all controversy. So if they have a controversial commentator, their attitude is, well, we can't put another one on. That's just too expensive. So they go to that commentator and they tell them, tone it down or we're going to get in trouble. So you get that kind of thing happening. You also get informal pressure. FDR has contacts with some of the sponsors who are powerful Democratic Party people. That's how Bo Carter gets forced off the air. Uh, he has contacts with General Foods sponsors. Um, interestingly enough, one of them who becomes ambassador to the Soviet Union and is very controversial ambassador because he's kind of pro-communist guy, a pro-Russia Soviet Union guy uh, named Joseph Davies. So he's able to... Uh, manipulate all these methods. So by the late 30s, there are no FDR, anti-FDR commentators on network radio, right? There, you might you might find them in the smaller stations, the regional kind of quasi-networks, but the big networks, they've been banished by the late 1930s from being radio commentators because it's just too much trouble to police that. Are you going to provide some alternative voice, you know, and do you want to alienate the administration? FDR has given a lot of favors to the radio stations. He has big support from radio, and but the rest of the press, the print press, doesn't like him. They tend to oppose him, but radio is in his corner, and they, they're getting certain perks from him. And he went after uh, print in a different way, going back to sort of the, the persecution of, of lobbying, which, which is the sin of having a, an opinion that sounds political. Um, so was he successful in, in stifling the press as well or, or less successful there? It depends on what period you're talking about. I would say less successful. Now, if we look at the pre-World War II period, there was a very interesting ploy by another key FDR ally. He succeeded Black, head of Black's committee named Sherman Minton. 
Mitten is from Indiana. And Mitten proposed a bill, which I think, I think FDR put him up to it based on various things. I can't prove it 100%. Um, that the bill would have said, said essentially that if you publish anything known to be untrue, any newspaper article known to be untrue, this is a felony and you are subject to a potential prison sentence. This is in 1938. Minton proposes his bill. The reaction is instantaneous on both the left and the right that this is going too far. This is ridiculous. Uh, Hitler's uh, news service, the Nazi news service, even praises the bill. And a lot of people, of course, quote that. And it it is it is shouted down, laughed down. However, right as this reaction is coming, FDR has a news conference and he's asked about this. He said, what do you think of this bill? He said, well, you know, uh, the trouble with that bill would be uh, we'd have to, uh, we couldn't have all, any room left in the federal prisons. He's joking, right? For all the people that would violate that law. There, we'd have to increase the budget of the federal prison system. And uh, then, as right as he's sort of moving on to the next question, he says, you guys brought it on, you know. You brought it on yourselves, you know. And he laughs, and he moves on. So that's not exactly, he's already aware, I think, at that time. There's an editorial cartoon that says Franklin discovers lightning from one of the leading anti-New Deal papers, which talks about the gag bill and lightning hitting the White House in response to the gag bill. So I think it was quite clearly he was testing the waters, but this is positive. And one of the things I say is there was a left-right pro-civil liberties coalition that I would very much like to see revived, including a lot of New Dealers, who are don't like this stuff and oppose it. Um, and we don't have that today, but I wish we did, not to the same extent. You know, a lot of people on the left just are not going to go through for this stuff. You know, I've I've talked about this a lot, and I, I definitely wanted to to I assume that you've noticed that your your historical research um very much invokes and and echoes and rhymes with um current events coming from our government and you know it's some of us are aware of of countries like um australia actually created so-called concentration camps to to put uh to put people that tested positive for covid all of these things but particularly the civil liberties the the intimidation of people speaking their minds and there's there is this this emerging coalition of civil libertarians and anti-authoritarians very much being driven by, by people that would have identified um, on the left. They thought they were good progressives, but, but their version of progressivism was um, robust free speech and, and the freedom to, to associate and gather and all of these things that, that we thought were sort of um, uh, settled American values. But, but you're seeing that we keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah, we're having sedition trials again, right? Historians traditionally had condemned sedition trials because what's sedition, right? Whatever you want it to be, right? I mean, it's 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 not defined, but we've had people convicted of sedition when, you know, there were other perfectly good laws to convict people on J6, such as trespass, assault, right? 
we've got these law we've got laws on the books to go after people who do things you know like uh, assault the capital or whatever we got ways to do that now we're going down the road of sedition now on the left and i wish more conservatives were denouncing this we're starting to see states prosecute people for domestic terrorism like in atlanta same time the trump trial is occurring there are domestic terrorism prosecutions going on against uh, left-wing environmentalist types. All It's a grab bag, right? We're seeing this come back. And I, I've been dismayed by the lack of willingness to say, wait a minute, we tried sedition trials. We don't want to do this again. I've seen very few people doing that. But they were so notorious during World War II, there was a mass sedition trial. Does sound familiar? Of uh, 30 people in Washington, who were accused of uh, promoting insubordination in the military under the sedition laws and didn't even know each other, people in many cases, each other. They were scooped up from all around the country. A mass trial, the trial events eventually gets a lot of criticism from civil libertarians, including New Dealers, some New Dealers who said, this is just going too far. And it ends because the judge dies. <laughs> And some say that the antics of the defendants, 30 really odd characters in the courtroom, killed him. But people, they just said, no, we don't want to continue this. And it falls apart. The largest mass trial, I think, in Washington, D.C., um, I believe that is the case ever, was the mass sedition trial. And it ends up being condemned by both people on the left and the right. But of course, the FDR is very much for this. He wants this kind of thing during the war. He wants to go after more mainstream people, like the publisher of the Chicago Tribune. He wants to even go after the black press during World War II. But they end up getting to deal with the black press. You stop your criticisms of the federal government, you downplay them, and we won't prosecute you. It's essentially what the deal was. And the black press during World War II ends up being very uh, complacent for that reason, because there's this threat, right, um, that if they do step out of line, they're going to be prosecuted. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. Now, FDR, you, you have a chapter in your book about FDR using um, particularly um, thuggish allies, mayors of cities to prevent people from uh, peacefully petitioning their government in the public square. Talk about, uh, I guess we start with Boss Crump. Okay. And a matter of fact, I have an article coming out on this in the next few days in National Review. Um, but Boss Crump was the big city boss in Memphis, been there for 30 years. And they had an interesting system in the 20s and 30s where African-Americans could actually vote in Memphis because Boss Crump could sort of use them if he needed them in primaries and that kind of thing. But they voted Republican in November, right? And they might have made the difference because the Republicans had carried the state a couple of times in, um, in the 1920s. So in 1940, 
the head of a Republican Party in Memphis who was black, his name was J.B. Martin. He was also the head of the National Negro Baseball League. Um, he was a prominent guy, quite well off. Martin becomes head of the local Republican Party. He says, I think we can carry this state for the for Wilkie, the uh, Republican candidate. Some polls showed it being pretty close nationally. And if Wilkie gets in, even if they don't win Tennessee, Wilkie's dedicated to civil rights. Sounds like a worthwhile bet. So he adds a rally of over a thousand people, multiracial Republican rally for Wilkie. Crump sends a message. He said, if you have another one of these rallies, and he planned several rallies, I'll police you. And Martin knew that something bad was going to happen, but he went ahead anyway and had second rally. What does Crump do? Uh, Martin had a drugstore, the largest Black-owned drugstore probably in the South, kind of a showplace. And uh, the next day, in fact, I think it was that very evening of the rally, people start, the police are at his drugstore, searching everybody, Black or white, who comes in and out of the drugstore. That's what they call policing. They search even little children, you know, who are trying to go in there to get ice cream cone. And this goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And Crump is very close to Roosevelt. There are a lot of complaints about this, but Crump had been instrumental in 1932 in swinging his delegation to Roosevelt. He'd been a loyal Roosevelt man. He'd gotten a lot of money from Roosevelt. He was also friendly with Eleanor Roosevelt. And so he, uh, Roosevelt does nothing. He sends in an investigator, but it's sort of like uh, some investigations that may be familiar to people now. Um, the investigation leads to nothing. Um, finally, someone in the Justice Department said, this is so outrageous what Crump is doing that we think he, we think we can prosecute him. We, this is one of the heroes, I would say. You know, a new dealer who said this. It stopped. Doesn't happen. And, and uh, people appeal to Eleanor Roosevelt, and I have a letter. And I think she's got a good civil rights record. I think there are a lot of good things about her. But she's also a political person. And Eleanor says, no, my husband, uh, people um, uh, you know, have advised me not to do anything about this. And um, so nothing happens. Um, and eventually, uh, Martin becomes so bad that he can't do his business anymore. He leaves Chicago. Very successful Republican in Chicago. But he comes back one time to uh, uh, go to the All-Star game because he owns the stadium in Memphis, Black Stadium. And he, the police come up to his box because he's in the presidential box. Uh, they arrest him. They put him in a holding cell and they said, you have to leave town. And he does. So he's literally expelled from Memphis. Nothing is done about it. Um, and a lot of people, uh, the irony of it is Roosevelt gave his four freedom speech just as Martin was beginning his exile in Chicago. And I, I kind of wonder what Martin would have thought of this, right, if he'd have heard this, when he did hear this. My God, nothing's being done. The Republicans wanted to do something about it, um, but they ended up not doing it partly because Martin told them, look, I think these people in the Justice Department want to prosecute Crump. And of course, that all felt that didn't go anywhere. But by then it was too late and nothing and nothing happens. It's just very sad. There's a quote that uh, uh, from Attorney General Francis Biddle 
that you quote in the book, and he's talking about FDR's attitudes towards internment, where he says, I do not think he was much concerned with the gravity or implications of this step, nor do I think that the constitutional difficulty plagued him. He was never theoretical about things. And at every story you've told has been, I don't care about the Constitution, I don't care about the Bill of Rights, I don't care about civil liberties, this is my goal and I will get there. That's, that's FDR in a nutshell. Yeah, and the other attorney general, one of his other ones said very similar things. Jackson said very similar things about FDR's attitudes. Now, Biddle is interesting because Biddle opposed a lot of the civil liberties abuses. He opposed Japanese internment. So tell me that if people tell me, well, FDR, it's forced, hand was forced. His own attorney general is against it. Yeah, he goes along with it. Uh, but Biddle is very critical of Roosevelt's civil liberties records. But he shows a, comp a compartmentalization that you sometimes time see among people among both the left and the right. He dedicates his memoirs, the same memoirs where he condemns FDR and civil liberties to FDR. So you see this very interesting, which we see now, right, where people are, are forgiving things. But Biddle is very critical of FDR's civil liberties approach, um, as is J. Edgar Hoover, at least on Japanese internment. Hoover's against it. So you have the head of the Justice Department, head of the FBI, you have the you have the secretary. You could go down a long list of people that are against Japanese internment. And Biddle even says, look, there isn't that much public support for this, really. Even on the West Coast, it's manageable. It's not that much. Biddle just dis dismisses the argument that there's such hysteria that we have to do this. He does not buy into it. Um, so... That's FDR's own attorney general at the time. So how does uh, how does FDR's uh, reputation survive all of these stories that you just told? That's a very good question. I think over time, um, people would focus on the things he, you know, th this is the man that won the war, that fought the battle against totalitarianism. Um, and they would look at things like the Four Freedoms. We still quote it all the time. This is 1941, right in the middle of all of this. And we focus on it. Um, a lot of the people FDR opposed aren't particularly well-liked by historians. Um, a lot of them were wealthy. Some of them were wealthy. Uh, some of them uh, you know, were just anti-New Dealers, were against FDR's welfare state. They're, they're not regarded by a lot of historians as sympathetic figures. And FDR is good at is covering his tracks and even his lifetime. Very good example, again, as I gave his Japanese internment. Uh, the executive order, if you read it, that Roosevelt issued, which led to the, the whole chain of events of internment, doesn't mention Japanese Americans once. That's the enforcement order signed by General DeWitt. When the Supreme Court ends up uh, making one of three rulings, a weak one, against Japanese internment, they end up quoting FDR, who had given this speech about racism um, and the, you know, the Japanese soldiers, so forth. Later, um, they even avoid blaming him. The ACLU doesn't blame him for internment, even though a lot of its members are against it. So I think a lot of the people on the left just saw him as such a great guy for the welfare state, they just look past this stuff, really, in, in many different ways. Um, 
I think that's a problem. Of course, during the McCarthy era, it's 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 the communists, uh, the far left that's being persecuted. They had tended to be pro FDR. So they're not really inclined to draw comparisons between FDR and Joseph McCarthy, for example. There's a lot of opportunistic reasons. The Communist Party in World War II was all for violating civil liberties of FDR's opponents, right? So all of these things come together to, to kind of get them off the hook. Uh, your new book forthcoming, The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, The Untold Story of FDR's Concentration Camps, Censorship, and Mass Surveillance. When does this book come out? Well, it's available now at Amazon for pre-orders, but it'll come out in October. So get your order in. And I think they're trying to arrange uh, where I can you know, send you autographed orders if you're interested in that. But it's it's going to be coming out and uh, uh, hopefully it'll have some sort of impact. Certainly the timing is perfect on it. And I, in this book, I have to resist the temptation to draw modern parallels. And as a story, and I, I want to have something that's timeless, and I avoid that. But if readers look at this, and I think you will agree with me, they'll see countless parallels to things that are going on now and positive lessons too about the possibilities of coalitions on both the left and the right for civil liberties which i hope we can revisit um you know that tradition maybe after the book comes out we can we can spend all of our time just talking about what's happening now and and how it how it relates back to that i'd love to do that um you have done other projects with the independent institute is that right Yes, I, I did a, a book called The Voluntary City, which is an edited collection about how private enterprise uh, provided welfare, roads, all kinds of services in historically, um, and a book about fraternal societies. These are mutual aid organizations that before the welfare state. And then the, the, my, my favorite book, maybe up till now, maybe still, is a biography of Dr. T.R.M. Howard who was a black millionaire, uh, self-help leader, mutual aid leader, um, kind of a guy that would almost seems like he belongs in an Ayn Rand novel in a way, kind of rugged individualist. But he was a key civil rights figure in Mississippi and was involved in the Emmett Till case, finding evidence and witnesses, a Republican. Uh, Howard was not easily categorized, but um, if any of you have seen the movies about Emmett Till, he's a character, and hopefully there will eventually be a movie focusing on him. I think there needs to be. So we can find you at the Independent Institute, which is a great, uh, you know, one of our OG institutions for for liberty-minded analysis. Um, do you brave social media as well? Are you out there on on the Twitters? Yeah, my Twitter account have been inactive for a long time, but I, I've, I've ramped it up in the last couple months. So. Uh, People, I invite people to visit it, and um, and I'm on Facebook and so forth. So, okay, yeah, and I got some articles coming out that might be of interest, including one on J.B. Martin. I've got coming one coming out in internment, and one coming out on Eugene Debs and how Debs provides a precedent, I think, against disqualifying Trump from the ballot, but not for the reasons necessarily that people have pointed to. So that'll be coming out in the next few days as well. Okay, thank you, David. This has been great. All right, thank you. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you wanna know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.